Good. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, already just such a great morning, and uh, man, it is Memorial Day weekend, and wanted just to take a moment to say, I know that we have at least one person that has served in the military, uh, and I, I know that one person would hate for us to draw attention, so I'm just going to say, if you're here, <laughs> if you're here, and you have served our country just in the military, and I, I want to say thank you. And I know on behalf of our entire church family, say thank you. And I know that today is a day of remembrance for those that gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And of course, we want to eternally and, and exceptionally be grateful just for the sacrifices that were made by them and by their families. And so just be mindful today that, you know, we're grateful for the long weekend. It's great to rest and we need to rest. But let's do remember why we have the long weekend. And so just be aware of those in your, in your life, in your family, in your friends, and if they, if, especially if, if there are those that have lost loved ones, let's just remember today to encourage them well. It's a, it's a day that they're reminded to, reminded very acutely of that sacrifice. And so let's appreciate them. Let's pray for them. And ultimately, let us let this point us to the ultimate sacrificial work in Christ and realize that uh, he gave his life so that we could all be redeemed. And so again, it'll lead us to eternal gratitude. So let's go ahead and pray with that being said, and we'll get into our text for the day. Lord, we love you so much, God, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a day to remember human sacrifice. And Lord, to see a picture of, of, of the love of Christ where it says in John that greater love has no man than this than he who lays his life down for a friend. And so Lord, let us not miss the opportunity to be humbled and to appreciate those that have done that and the families of those that have allowed their own, their own family members to give in that way. And God, let us also remember the work that you have done for, for us in Christ. Lord, that we are in need. We were oppressed. We were captive. We were under attack. Lord, in your love, you infiltrated this world. You infiltrated behind the lines of the enemy, God, to liberate us. And so, God, let today just be a day of, of, of celebration, of, of, of freedom, a day of remembrance, of the work of sacrifice, and a day of gratitude because of all of that. So, Lord, we give you this time. Speak to us through your word. Speak through me, in spite of me, whatever it takes. Just let your work be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And what a, what a great way to end our time of worship with, that, with just that chorus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. It's all about you. And, and, and I hope we know that we're talking about more than just the way that we sing. And we're talking about, you know, and I think the original heart behind that song when Matt Redman wrote it back in the late 90s, I think, it was probably about the music, mostly, because it was in this big movement of music had happened, and music became the thing. And, but again, the, heart of, the driving heart of that is even just the, life of a, the, the offering of a life for the Lord, an uh, offering of worship. And so just, I, I love that that's where we ended, because it, it's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. And if there, if there is a heartbeat that leads us into our text today, it is that. It is, what does our life of worship look like? And I think with that, there's a couple of questions. Is one, do we have a true life of worship? Because there is, we all worship something. Uh, the, the truest worship, the, what, the, the worship that we can say is in spirit and in truth, is the one that is uh, founded in Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, and the one that is assented to God in Christ. And so, uh, we, we can, that's where we're at today. That's the heartbeat of today, is what does our life of worship look like as we wrap up uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in since September. 
And so I'm excited about today because it's a day just to kind of just to kind of go back through everything and just remember the words of Jesus. So go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to start in verse 24. Click on your apps. If you need a Bible, you don't have an app or a Bible, look underneath you in a chair there. Uh, under a chair, there's a Bible there. It is page 692. Uh, also, we've continued the, the version kind of, kind of guide. If you like that, use it. Uh, it's the Bible app that everybody, most everybody uses. Go to events. If you have your GPS on, it'll pop up the Bridge Montrose. It's just a simple support to today's message. Um, place for you to take notes, place for you to read, place for you to give prayer requests, that kind of thing. So if you like digital stuff, there it is for you. Take it or leave it. So, but we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're finishing it today. John Stott says this. He says that the Sermon on the Mount is the closest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. He says, for, it's his own, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. Another way to put it is, is that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom to look like someone who lives under his rule and reign. And I'll say it one more way. It teaches us what Christ followers are and what they look like. Simple. We just try to distill it down a little bit more each time. So we're going to jump right in with that being said and start right there with verse 24. All right, here we go. Matthew 7, 24 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine. We're going to stop right there. We're going to start right there and stop right there. Everyone then, this is Jesus talking. He's just preached a sermon, this whole message. He's wrapping it up. So he says, everyone then who is here listening to me, who hears these words of mine. So what words is he speaking of? Here's the, he's talking about all that he just taught, all that he sat there and they were listening. And he's laid it out. So he starts his last thought to summarize with this call to remember, this call to, hey, there's a point to everything I've said. You need to hear it now. Here's the point. So he's referring to everything he's taught. So to today, what we're going to do real quickly is review through the whole Sermon on the Mount in broad strokes. And I encourage you just to, I mean, like, let's get crazy and say at least once a month for the rest of your life, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Longest sermon from Jesus. We want to learn from Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. So why not, right? It takes 20 minutes of your time. So, but today we're going to go through it in broad strokes, kind of looking at each kind of imperative and each truth that Jesus taught us, and then we're going to kind of come to our takeaways from this, from this summary teaching, all right? So here we go. Uh, we're not going to read through the whole thing today, uh, but, and we're not going to reteach it all, but we're going to just kind of go and review. So just kind of track along, make a couple of notes. If you want to follow up with any of this, feel free. We can do that. So first, it, the sermon starts in Matthew 5, 1. It starts with this section called the Beatitudes. Uh, just before we get into that, to know this, there is a prerequisite assumed in Jesus' teaching, especially here in the Beatitudes. And that prerequisite is that the, per, the, the listener has acknowledged that they are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is their only hope. Now, Jesus is here, so he's pointing to this. He's calling them to this. He's saying, I am, I am the subject of this message. But for us, what we know is that we have to have acknowledged that we need a Savior. We believed in our hearts and confessed in our mouths that Jesus is Lord and that we are a new creation. And if this is new, I'm talking in with some presumed context as if you've been here every week for the last nine months. So again, I understand there will be some new information today that I'm saying as if it's known. And know that it's okay not to know what you don't know. And we can always talk about it more and you can talk about it with each other more after this. So make notes of the things that were new, that were assumed. And that's great conversation to have with each other. But there is that assumption that the, the, the subject of Jesus' teaching here is someone who is redeemed, made new, brought from death to life, okay? So it, that there is a transformed person. 
That's the assumption. So the Beatitudes especially highlight that because as verses 5, as verses 1 through 12 work through, the first thing that they're showing is the character and the person of Jesus. It's describing Jesus that he is meek, he is merciful, he was made poor in spirit as he gave up his right to take on death. Okay, so we see that. We see that he, he took on our needs. So it's pointing to the work and the character of Jesus. And then in the same breath, because we, when we die to sin, we are made alive in Christ. We, are, we, we, we take on his life. We take on his righteousness. We take on his purpose. We take on his promise. We take on his hope. So we also see our, uh, our own identity. So what is often taught as a causality, a cause statement, if you do this, you will get this. As you look at these statements of, uh, of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be conformed. Uh, me growing up, they were taught as if you do this, if you show mercy, you'll get mercy. But what they're saying is that because you have been shown mercy, you will show mercy because you have realized your great need for redemption and salvation that you cannot achieve on your own. You will be poor in spirit because you remember your need. Because, because Jesus was meek, because he was like the lamb before the shearer that did not make a sound when he could have called down all the powers of heaven to avoid the cross and did not, we can be meek. So see, it is not cause and effect, it is an expression of identity. So that's what we see. It shows the great blessing of being redeemed. It also shows the great responsibility. So instead of cause and effect, we see that these are the blessed truth of being in Christ and the responsibility of being in Christ, the response, the expression of. And the question has to be asked as we go through the Beatitudes is, do you know Jesus? So then we move on. The next section is chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. As Jesus comes out of the Beatitudes, we see that in Christ we have a call to live as salt and light in, the, in this world. So it's just this charge. He comes out of the gate swinging, and he's like, this is your purpose. This is what you're supposed to live out. This is why you're here. So as salt and light, we, we work in the truth, the express truth of God in our life to preserve this earth and his truth as he does because, again, it's, it's falling and it's moving to his destruction. But as his truth is expressed and surrendered to, we preserve, we proclaim as the light. The city on the hill cannot be hidden, right? So as the light, we, we do not hide it. We shine. We shine out the light of Christ. And then one of the other things we talked about in the salt is that salt only loses its, loses its saltiness when it's diluted, it's a stable compound. So we see the, our, kind of a glimpse of the church here. There's no such thing as a, a lone ranger Christian. When someone says, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, I would say, you don't need to go to church to be saved. But if you are a true Christ follower, your heart will long for the people of God. Your heart will long for the communal experience of the people of God. Because we, 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 we encourage one another, we challenge one another, we compel each other to good works, we, we, we suffer together, we, we laugh together, and we engage in kingdom mission together. So we see that first glimpse. So does your light shine before mankind, and are you committed to doing it in the community of the gospel? And then we continue, uh, verses 17 through 20, Jesus is the promised Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. He's just, he's, again, he's just, he's building this foundation of which he's going to teach this highly practical sermon. So he says, hey, I am the Messiah that was promised, but I am also not saying that all that has happened before doesn't matter anymore. Because he said, I came to not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled it in perfect ways. He fulfilled it 
by doing everything he said. He fulfilled it by teaching it perfectly, and he fulfilled it by satisfying the righteous requirement of God that the old law required that was, again, I know this is like a lot, but make notes of stuff you want to talk about more later. But he came to fulfill it, and he did. So Jesus fulfilled, really he fulfilled the intent of the Old Testament law, which was meant to show the people of God how to live out their righteousness. The people of God, the people of Israel, were God's people set apart for a holy purpose, and the law was given so that they could express that set-apartness. They could express, express the righteousness. So, again, that's, that's what it was given for. So now in Christ, we can do that more fully. We can now, because our righteousness is in Him, the requirement is satisfied, but yet the, the, the requirement of the law is still set upon us. We should still strive to live it out. Um, what's different is that the, 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 the requirement didn't change, but the motive did. We live it out uh, out of a response of joy and not just to attain. This is all of our hope. This is all of our call. So do you know this freedom that is in Christ fulfilling the law, where the work that it must be achieved is taken out of your hands and put in Christ? And then verses 21 through 48, to, to wrap up the rest of chapter 5, Jesus goes on to show how what was previously taught was inferior to the promise and a new way of life and redemption that is in him. So the old law again, he's, he's showing a picture. So what he just said, now he's illustrating. He takes six common teachings, the, and you see him introduced in the, as it was said, as you have heard. So he's going and he's saying, hey, this is how you've applied the law. This is how I'm coming to fulfill it and to show you even a better way. And again, he challenges the motives. Um, so what, what was once taken by man and lived out to the letter and mishandled for achievement is now expressed as relationship as we look through all these six motifs. Uh, and, and here we see that although the Old Testament was never meant to be a righteousness achieved by works, our sinful hearts made it so. It wasn't the dysfunction of the law that was imperfect. It was our application in our wayward hearts that was imperfect. And so he's saying, in me, I will make your hearts true. He's saying, don't just live to do the words. Live out who you are in me as someone who is fully accepted, fully transformed, and fully committed. So is your righteousness for the applause of man or of God? So we keep going. We move into chapter 6, and, and, and chapter 6 is, is kind of one, one driving thought in itself. Jesus taught us what our transformed desires and amb ambitions look like. So again, recognize the big picture Jesus started with, and then he has gotten, he has, he has moved to be extremely practical. He wants to show you a picture. So to put it succinctly, if I could ever do that, um, <laughs> we are called to live in and live out of the reality that as a redeemed child of God, we have one desire and one ambition. Everything is changed. Not just our eternal destination, but everything is changed. Again, new creation, new life. So it all changes. Every bit of our desires and ambition are brought into that of God's. And all we do, this is again summary of, of what's taught in these, we long for God's will to be done in and through us as those who are in Christ. That is the one driving desire and ambition ambition of your life. That's what Jesus is saying. In that, we desire to see God's glory shine through us and for the reality of his kingdom that is promised, that is here and is yet to come that we would make that a reality for those around us as we live out 
this way for the glory of God. So we are, we are zealous for his glory to be made known in his life, and we are urgent for us to reveal the reality of the promised kingdom through our lives. That is our one desire and ambition. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? It said, this is how you should pray. He wasn't giving us a form. He wasn't giving us a script. Again, the foundationally, he was, he was transforming our hearts and our motives. And the driving force, the driving indicative of that prayer that Jesus gave was that one desire that we just said, that our will would be conformed to God's so that his glory would be made known through us and that people would be drawn to the promise of his kingdom. And Matthew 6 kind of comes to, comes to a close near the end there. One of the most central statements to, to this sermon as well as to our lives as we think about the decisions that we make and the things that we pursue. It says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we have one desire, one ambition. Is there anything that you pursue over God's glory and kingdom as one who is in Christ? Moving on, this is fast. Are you taking it in? Is it like, whew, a lot? Okay, so Matthew 7, 1 through 6, we see this. We're shown how to relate to others. Uh, we, we've been given, so in Christ, we've been given all truth. We've been given the Holy Spirit. But the one thing that we're not is the judge. And this is the, the section of Scripture where you, you know the judge not or you will be judged. We are not the judge. God is the only right, good, and sovereign judge. We are to love holy. We're to live out our convictions for the glory of God. And we're, we are to call others to do the same. We should live an invitational life. We should live a life that proclaims the, the truth of Jesus, that proclaims the, 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 the benefit to human flourishing and a life lived out to his, his will and way. But yet we are never to sit in the judgment seat. God is the only one that is worthy. Do you show grace and love to those around you while living out truth with deep conviction? That's where we're left with there. Okay, so moving. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus teaches us how to relate to God the Father. That's what he's doing here. So we've seen how to relate to others. Now is how do we relate to God the Father? And what we see in this, this is the, this is the, the teaching of, of, of again, he's, he's a loving Father who gives good gifts to his children. That's kind of the heart of this one. God is glorious, he's majestic, and he's holy. He is all of those things. He is, he is transcendent above all. He is unfathomable. He, he was before, before was. Can you say it that way? I mean, <laughs> there is no beginning, there is no end, right? We, we can't, there, are, there are things of God we cannot even comprehend. But yet we see that while he is transcendent, he is also eminent, and he is this glorious, holy, sovereign God, but he is also without any separation and division of the two or, or, or kind of timeouts between expressing these, he is also our good, gracious, loving, heavenly Father. It's what we see here. So when we, relate, when we think about relating to God, I think off, off, most of us settle in or often settle into this trying to relate to God as this distant person or being or thing. And we have a hard time understanding how we can truly relate. Jesus is saying, relate to him as a father. Bring all of your cares and anxieties to him. Knock until he answers. If, you're fa if you who are on earth who have sin know how to give good gifts, he says, you know, if your son asks for bread, you're not going to give him, you know, you're not going to give him a piece of iron. That's my paraphrase. Um, you're going to give, a good father is going to give a son bread if he's hungry. 
Who, so we, we who are sinful know how to do that. How much greater a perfect and holy loving God will he do what is good for you and me? So in Christ, we're not only compelled to relate to God with great humility and awe, but also as one who has been adopted as a son and a daughter to the most gracious of fathers. Who likes Annie? I love Annie. I've never seen the new one, but the old one. I mean, like, that's... There, did you not know there was a new one, Dave? I saw Dave's face. like, mm-hmm. I knew... Anyway, so... Like, Daddy Warbucks, like, that's, 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 a, like, if you're getting adopted, you want to get adopted by Daddy Warbucks, because he's a, a man of character, and he's got a ton of money, and he's, you know, and so, like, that's great, but again, like, we were adopted by the eternal, loving God, and so, like, as, as great as, like, our tangible minds, like that thought, our, 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 our finite minds cannot grasp the goodness of our Heavenly Father, but you were, you were an outcast. You were, you, were, you were an orphan. And in Christ, in his redeeming work and his reconciling work, you were adopted as a son and a daughter of the Almighty God, who is our good, good Father. Praise God. So what is your view of God? Do you know that he loves you and welcomes you? And then do you relate to him as so? And then in 7.12, Jesus kind of just doubles down. We, we thought we were already done with how to relate to others, but he doubles down with presenting this golden rule that we all know. And it's, you know, it says, well, whatever you want done to you, do for others. Simple rule, summary of all things. And he says, here's the way you should relate. Here's the way you should live. And the key, the foundational truth that drives this is for us to remember the work that was done for us in Christ. This takes us all the way back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. And so a saying is you remember the work that you were in need of in Christ, as you remember that there was no way for you to arouse yourself from death and find life, as there was no way for you to insert yourself into the family of God. You were destined to be an orphan forever, that because of Christ, those ways have been made. The penalty has been paid, it's been taken. And so that is the key to understanding this golden rule. He's saying, hey, just one more time, how you relate to others is, is rooted in how you understand and relate to me. In Christ, we are not only compelled to relate to God with great humility and awe, but also as one that has been adopted, as I just said. I jumped up a note. It, it applied again, right? So that's good. But just, we, we must, as Christ was an advocate for us, as he incarnated into our world, as he came into our world, took on flesh, humbled himself, got into the dirt with us, we must be an advocate. That's what this, this is what it is to do for others as you would want done for you. Our, long, our, our deepest need, our deepest longings is for that redeeming work of Christ. And so what we're saying is be an advocate for others because Christ advocated for you. And again, the deepest need is the soul of mankind. So then, 7, 13 through 14, and luckily the wrap-up is really fast, so this is, this is going to be great. So 7, 13 and 14 says, Jesus pointed out, that the way is not easy that leads to life. This is where we see the, the, the picture of the two gates, one wide, one narrow, the two roads, one wide and one narrow. And what we can draw from that, there's also two groups of people and two destinations. And we see that one, the, the, the wide road leads to destruction, the narrow road leads to life. The narrow gate leads to life, the wide gate leads to destruction. And this is, remember, this is not a matter of accessibility. This is, not a, this is not the idea of a funnel where only there's enough room for some. It is more of a, it is a, it is an expression of that the narrow road is difficult. There is oppression, there is persecution, there is struggle. 
And there are only a few that go through that gate because only a few choose it. That's the driving truth here. And the, the big takeaway is that we, the narrow gate, the narrow road, the one that is difficult, the one that is full of strife and struggle is worth it because the reward is even greater. And so that was what we took away from that. And so we see that in Christ, we can say, as Paul did, that I do not consider this present suffering worth comparing to the glory that will, rebuild, that will be revealed to us. And so because of our eternal hope, because of the importance of our present purpose to shine as light and to live as salt in this earth, we will endure. We will choose the narrow road, the narrow gate that is not driven by the things of the world. It is not driven by the desire to attain, but it is driven by the desire and the ambition for the glory of God and making his kingdom known. Do you see it all coming together? And so it is, there is two roads, two gates, and out of that we're left of which gate and which road will we travel? Is, is the reward worth it? Is the present purpose worth it? Do the things of this world weigh you down so that you will not travel? Or are they things that you leverage for the glory of God? Whether it's job, whether it's stuff, whether it's opportunity, whether it's personality, whether it's personal giftings. Do any of them become your idol? Do any of them become the things that you pursue? Or do they all, are they all understood as gifts that are God's first that will be returned to him? In a few weeks, in two weeks, we'll start a stewardship series that Kurt Kiefer and Nori and Travis are going to teach us through on, on that very thing. It's God's first. How do we take all of our time, treasures, and talents and return them to him as a joyful offering? But that's what we're pointed at. And then coming up to where we're at, the last section there, verses 15 through 23 of chapter 7, we see Jesus tells us that, that the change that happens in us is so complete. The transformation is so utterly distinct from what it was before that we will not be able to help but bear fruit in our lives. He warns us against false prophets and false teachers. And he calls us, all of us, all of the church, to be aware and to be prayerful and to, to recognize false prophets and false teachers. It's all of our responsibility. And he tells us the way that we can is to look at the fruit of, of their lives. And what, we're, what he's saying here is that because I have transformed you, I have, again, recurring theme, because the work in me is so complete, a person can only fake it for so long. They cannot sustain this, this front and their true motive, the motive for self-glory or destruction, destructive to God's destruction to God's desire and his glory will be, will be rooted out and will be shown. So it's saying live with discernment, pursue the Lord, pursue truth, fight for each other, protect each other as the body of Christ, protect the truth of God and the glory of God on the bigger picture and participate in, in living true and living out the fruits and letting the fruits uh, come in your life no matter when and where. So we must watch out for each other and guard ourselves from apathy that inhibits the expression of our own fruit. So what is the fruit of your life? And is there fruit in every area of your life? And then we come to today's text, looking at these last verses, verses 24 through 29, and we'll see this. We'll see that all of eternity is at stake. All of eternity is at stake in what Jesus is teaching so let's read this entire passage, and we're going to make some quick points of application, and then we'll have um, hopefully some good time of just responding. So here we go, starting in 24. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So as we've seen prior, two gates, two roads, two trees that bear good fruit, bad fruit, we see here, we see two builders. We see two builders. We're continuing. This is our last, our last comparison of, of two distinctions. We see two builders in verses 24 through 25. We see a builder who builds on a firm foundation because they've embraced the truth of Jesus. They, they, they are not just hearers, but they are doers of the word. So we see that. That's the, that's, that's the first builder. The second builder in 26 and 27 is a foolish builder who builds on sand as they do not live out and, and surrender to the truth taught by Jesus. So in these two builders, I want us to notice a few things, in this, and we're going to wrap up. So first, the first thing we see, the houses that were built, as we can see in these comparisons, they seem the same until the storm comes. We don't see the difference in the houses until the storm comes. It says they built houses and they were there. And then when the storm came, the winds blew. One fell and one didn't to great destru- destruction. And you know as well as I do, storms happen in this life. We face storms. We do. This is a fallen world. There's struggle. So what is a storm? I mean, it's anything, anything that disrupts. What are some of the storms that we face? What are some of the storms that disrupt, that cause our foundations to be shaken as we, as we sit here and say, is our house going to hold? I mean, just to sum them all up, I would say transitions and tragedy. Transitions and tragedy. Some of those would be a new job or a loss of job. Either one of those brings an insecurity that, that, test our, that tests our houses that we've built sickness and death, moving into a new community, exciting but also stressful, exciting but a possible storm, financial struggle, whether it's through that loss of job or the economy going down or your industry suffering, as many of us in Houston feel that right now. Good things can be storms. New babies happens a lot in this church. They're wonderful gifts of God, but they change everything. And they, they expose a lot of fractures. Storms come. New marriage. Again, beautiful gift of God. There's a reason that, uh, that it's common to hear someone say the first year of marriage is the hardest. It's not true for everybody. But the first year, it's a common saying. Marriages are hard. It's two selfish people coming in and living life together every moment of every day. And all of a sudden, having to think about someone else besides yourself, just those things in itself bring storms. And then all these other things that were storms just that you had to deal with, now you've got to worry about someone else. It's not just the piling up of negative things. It's also the piling up of good things. Just when we have so many good things in our life that we want to do, and we just don't have enough of us to do it, enough of me to do it. That brings a storm because now all of a sudden you're conflicted in your conscience, you're conflicted in your priorities, you're conflicted in the, the, the quality of, of time and work that you're putting into the things that you're committing to. And again, that, even that is a storm. Even that's a, 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 a thing in your life that disrupts and challenges the fruit of our lives. So when we think about 
But what we're seeing here, what we're thinking about, when we think about the storms that come, and we see that in, in one storm the house stands, and in one storm the house falls to great destruction, what we're being pointed to once again is our calling, is calling us to our new identity in Christ and the all-encompassing mission in this world for Him. If we have a new identity in Christ, we also have a new reason for living in this life. And so when we think about the storms, but when we think about the, the house that is affected and falls by the storm, that a practical way to look at that is that these, this, this all-encompassing purpose and identity we have is now marred and not expressed. We don't see the fruit of this truth as a result of the storm. But what we see is that if it is, if our expression, if the house standing is a matter of identity in Christ, it's a matter of his, his position that he's given us, if it's a matter of his glorious purpose over our lives, the storms can't affect that. The storms should not change our identity or our purpose. Now, the storms may change in the ways that we participate the ways that our life is built around, the way that our lives take on the flesh, if you will, of kind of the, the, the of that calling on our lives, but it never ceases. Uh, I think about James 1, 22 through 25, when we come to here, it says, be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Very similarly here, the prerequisite here is, is that the one who, who doesn't forget is the one who has been changed by Christ. It is because he is the one, the, he is the one who brought the law of liberty, the perfect law. And so when we are when we are not just hearers, but we are also doers in any circumstance, we are living out this identity. We are living living out this all-encompassing purpose. Seasons and circumstances of life come and go, and they will, they will affect some of the ways in which we participate. But because this is, an, because it is, again, a part of our identity, it's a part of our call, we can never stop being an adopted child of God, and His purpose for you and me never ceases. So just practically, personally, let's, let's struggle well. Let's wrestle well with priorities. Let's also know that the expressions of what it is to be in Christ never take a time out, never take time off. We're always called to be personal worshipers in prayer and in word to be pursuing Him. We are always called to be on, on mission to where our life is the light and salt of the earth. We are also always called to be in community. And I don't mean that, you know, the organizational side of the church. I mean that we live as a people of God, a family of God, and we prioritize that in ways that we can. Again, much grace, right? Much, much grace. But never, ever call the time out on who you are in Christ and what he's called you to do. We cannot, but we are in grace to pursue it humbly and with each other and help each other. So when the storms come, it shouldn't strangle out the fruit of our lives. Really, the storms should make our fruit all the more apparent. It is the storm that proves the house to be sound, what we see here in this text. So quickly moving, second, the second thing I want us to see in these comparisons, the difference is not in the craftsmanship of the builder, the ability of the builder, but in the foundation they built upon. 
Notice the key difference in our verses is that one house was built on the rock and one was built on the sand. That's the difference we see. That's, the, that's it. The foundations were the reasons for the one that stood and one fell. Guys, this is, this, I hope you hear this as great news. Like, I hope you hear this as, as just a bit of relief, some weight off your shoulders, some encouragement, some, some wind in your cells, some steroids in your muscles. I don't know. Like, I, I, just, I hope, don't take steroids. They're bad. Many reasons why. Won't go into any. <laughs> so anyway, just y'all see what just happened in my head just then. I pictured a roid rage and I almost acted it out. <sighs> so I've never had that. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, thank you for your grace. Um, but it is good news. Our security is not left in our hands. And again, just getting back to the truth of salvation, if it was left in your hands, none of you would choose Christ. So again, let's just take it all the way back from death to life. Dead people don't pick up their hands for help, right? Just remembering that. So let's take it from there and then remembering that the fruit moving forward is one facilitated by God, one guaranteed by him and is saying, just live this out. You will have this fruit. It's a part of who you are. This is great. Our security is not left in our hands. We have responsibility, but our, our security is in him Psalm 18.2 says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let me read that again. <laughs> this is good. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. A little bit re repetitive for good reason. In whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Man, when we have the right foundation, and we, we understand the work that has been achieved in us and the work we're called to, what we build is built for eternity. We build for eternity. This is the difference between us having to work for our salvation and the work being done for us in Christ. We, as we think of this sermon, we must be reminded over and over again that our works are a result of great affection and devotion out of a response to the great work of God in Christ and our great reverence for his glory. Again, our works are not to attain or to achieve. They're, they're ones that we should willfully work towards with gladness, but they don't achieve anything for us other than ascribing worth and giving glory to God. And hope, I mean, I, my prayers for you and for me is that that is what motivates us with an unquenchable thirst and desire that that's enough, and we can't escape it. So lastly, to wrap up, the difference here that we see, the last difference is, the, is one of eternal significance. We spoke of the storms earlier in practical ways. We spoke of them in practical ways with eternal motivations, and that's important. And, and I think about well, why we want to think about practical practicality, because, again, we want to live this out. But, again, we're working towards something that is eternal, the eternal building, the eternal destruction. Uh, and, and as I was thinking on this, I thought about my house. My, Amber and I just bought a house, 1925 little bungalow in, in kind of the little annex of the Heights. Wonderful house, built in 1925. So we love it, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We, we, we did a lot of work, and may I just brag on, 16 different guys from our church came and helped me. Pretty stinking awesome. So that's just a little bragging on. I have a list of names. I'll send them out to you if you want. Um, <laughs> 
But that's just much love. But we, we've done a lot of work already, but we have a lot of vision for the future. And, and you know, it's, it's got, you know, at, you know, putting an addition on the back, and, but yet there's also a desire for a patio or a porch, and then there's maybe adding on to the top because we don't want to use up our whole lot. And my dad's a master builder. He, he is. He's a, he, he's a general contractor for most of his life. I mean, he sees things in exploded structural view in his mind. He can, he can tell you a cut list for an entire project just from thinking about it. I am not kidding. So I called him to talk about you know, some of the ideas just to run them past him. And he said, well, here's the key. No matter what you do, Heath, you want to start the first project building with the last project in mind. He said, so, because you're not going to be able to do all this at once. You're going to be stringing it out over a while. So, okay, so... First thing you want is a patio. Build a little patio, but build it with enough structural soundness to support, to be a foundation for, for, for later when you want to push the kitchen out, and it, needs that, and it needs that foundation, so you're not having to go and redo. And then when you build your kitchen, knowing that you want to possibly put a, 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 another floor above there, build it with enough structural integrity that it could support another floor. He says, so do, build your first project with the last project in mind. And again, thinking about us in this life, we must build and order our lives with eternity in view. This life is not what it's all about, but yet every day, every breath, we give it, again, we live for the glory of God, but what it is, again, what it is all about is the glory of God and, again, His eternal purpose of His glory being made known through your life. So we are to build with eternity in view. So yes, it's important to express these things practically and for these to be realities in our life. But again, when we think about the storm that comes and the destruction that comes, the, what Jesus wants to make sure is abundantly clear is that the, the storm that brings ultimate destruction is the one of eternal destruction. In verse 27, it says, And the rain fell and the flood came, floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Speaking of eternity, he's speaking of the house that stands, stands for eternity in Christ. We have eternal hope in him where all is restored. We are reunited with him. We're talking about heaven. The house that is ultimately destroyed and great was the fall of it is the eternal destruction. The one where there is no more hope of restoration. The one where you are destined to, the worst thing is separation from God for eternity. And after that is the eternal suffering of hell. So we must see that that is Jesus' heart in this, is first that all would come to know him, and then that their life would be a life building towards eternity, proclaiming the truth of his kingdom. So what God wanted all along in Christ, what he promised all along in Christ, and what Jesus is pointing us to, is the promise is not just new works, not just a new way of doing things, but the promise in Christ is a new heart, a new will, a new desire, a new ambition. Again, think totally transformed, totally of a different substance. And thankfully, Jesus' teaching didn't stop here. As we continue through Matthew and the other Gospels, we see that his life and teaching led us to the cross. If it stopped here, we would be left to work, work, work. But again, what he's pointing to and alluding to all comes to the cross. And in his sacrifice, again, our sacrifice was paid, we're made whole. And then he, he rose again. And then he came and he, he left his mission to the church. And so as we look here, we see 
not our works to save us, but his, as I said. And the last two verses of this sermon call us to the last charge from Jesus later in the gospel. And so we read those two right now. First, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we see the, the, all authority given to Christ as the promised Messiah. And then, all the, and then I was taken straight to Matthew 28. The last words, the mission that Jesus left to the disciples and to the church, to you and me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So in all authority, he proclaimed his authority and he said, So now you... In my authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So one ambition, one desire, the glory of God and making disciples throughout all the earth through, again, the saving knowledge of Christ and then walking alongside them, teaching them all that he has taught us. So the glorious invitation today is to know first the eternal peace and purpose in Christ and then also that you are not left alone to save yourself nor to live out the divine purpose of your life. We said the Sermon on the Mount shows us what someone looks like who lives as a citizen of the kingdom. And kind of a crazy thing today, but as a prayerful reflection and response, we're going to see ourselves a little bit. And uh, yeah, a little awkward. Haven't had this since our first service. If you weren't here in our first service, we watched ourselves worship. But just as a prayerful reflection today and a call to response and a time of commitment, as we think about this, giving us a picture of what a citizen of the kingdom looks like, what a, redeemed, what a redeemed child of God looks like, let us prayerfully just see ourselves for a little bit, as awkward as it is. And <laughs> it's really awkward. I feel like, to be fair, I should face myself right now. But to, to let God work in you. And, and, and as we come to this, we, we, I, hear, I hear two promises and two charges. First is that today is the day of salvation. That's what we see here. Today is the day. There's no need to delay. So if you're in here and you're like, I haven't met that. Pre- uh, Jesus isn't talking to me yet. Yeah, okay, I, I think I get it. I think that, okay, I've, so I've rebelled against God. I have. I've sinned against him. And he is the only one who is worthy to say what is right and wrong. And in his worthiness, he said that, the, the consequence of that sin is that there is separation, but in his great love, he sent his son Jesus so that, that separation can be reconciled. I cannot do that on my own. I don't know hope. I don't know peace. It is in Jesus, and I need that. Maybe that's you today, and as you look, that's just revealed to you. And so today, hear that today is the day of salvation. You can believe in your heart that he is Lord and confess in your mouth that he's raised from the dead, and you will be saved. And know that if that's not you, if you know that you are saved, if you know you have that assurance, remember the people around you. They don't. Today is the day of salvation for them. Live with that urgency. And again, one ambition, one desire, is all wrapped up in the heart and desire of God. And the other thing is that today is the day for mission. Our call starts in the closest relationships you have in this life and extends to the ends of the earth. Again, our our, our Our identity and our mission never ceases. It is an all-encompassing reality for who we are and what we're to be about, as we are to be about what the heart of God is about. 
So pray that you could see life differently. Pray that you could see yourself differently. You are one who has the Holy Spirit in you that has been transformed by truth. And if you see that, then know that God has you on this life so that you can be salt and light in this earth so that the name of Jesus could be lifted up above every name so that the world could be called to him and find salvation and glorify him and see picture of the kingdom here and now and for all eternity. So be prayerful today. Look at yourself in the mirror. See the person that God loved enough to send his only son to save. Let this mirror look into your life. Ask the question, what is your fruit? Are you bearing fruit? Does the storm prove your fruit all the more? What are you building toward? Are you building toward eternity? Are you building for the here and now? When you see something that's lacking, don't respond with guilt or shame. Know that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Lay it before the Lord. Realize that sanctification is a process. Being made more like God, being freed up from your old self is a process. So as you, as you see areas of your life that are not for him or of him, say, thank you, Lord. As best as I can, I laid them down today. And then do it every day. We look in mirrors all the time. I, I can't help it. I, oh, gosh. I, I, it's a problem. Um, but, man, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I'll be challenged by this every time. And, um, but, yeah, but let, <laughs> let this work be done and let the Lord just dig in. Let him reveal any way in you that is not of him. And let's just happily surrender today, knowing that his grace is sufficient. And find that life. And find, let that fruit be known. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to continue our service as we go into communion, time of remembrance. And uh, with the with the mirror, and might might be weird, but just let the Lord do what He wants to do in you. God, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Jesus, Lord. That in Him we have life, that we have salvation. Yes, for all of eternity, and that is a great hope. But also now, when we hear that you 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 came to give life and life to the full, you're talking about now. And that fullness of life comes from a peace that surpasses understanding, a hope that cannot be shaken, an experience of being a child that has been adopted as a son and a daughter to you, our almighty good God and heavenly Father. Let us not just go to church. Let us not just do things that Christians do. I pray, God, that more and more every day you would make it more and more real to us what it is to be totally changed, to be totally new, to be totally belonging in your family. And Lord, to have the church, to have the people of God, to to come alongside and to join together in unity, to express the fullness of Christ more and more to the world around us, to compel each other to good works, to encourage one another. God, again, all the things that you've taught us in this sermon. So God, I just lay this at your feet. I lay me at your feet. Be glorified in us. I pray that we would build for eternity on on you, our rock, or that we will live with urgency. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.